All right, please stand for the readings of God's glorious word. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took a hold of the snake and turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, light, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, the Lord said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe those two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, oh Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You will speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help the both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I am a little nervous this morning when I found out that the person in charge of the sound... Um, I met, I think she was about eight years old, and I don't know what I may have done back then, but it could be payback, you know. <laughs> I've been thinking about all the incidences I might have had with Golden Williams back in the day, so be nice to me. <laughs> uh, let me start just by thanking you for supporting Every Generation Ministries for uh, 30 years, and uh, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And uh, just last week, we had a team of uh, people in Nairobi, Kenya, and they were working with uh, the board of directors there and our new leader in that country because that's the 17th country that EGM has developed ministry in, which is amazing. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> and uh, this church has been a big part of that, uh, praying for the ministry, sending people to serve in the ministry with us over the years, and giving financial support to EGM, so thank you so much for that. So let me begin just by praying this morning before we look into this passage. Uh, God, I'm so thankful for the way that you've been so faithful to me over these 40 years, and Lord, thank you for the great work that you've done around the world through your church and the lives of boys and girls. 
and thank you for allowing us to be part of that with you. And Lord, even now as we're gathered here to study your word, we pray for the boys and girls that are in the Sunday school classes and right now are um, worshiping, being in, um, in relationship with teachers, and they're going to be looking at your word also and learning. We pray that you would stir up their hearts to build a life centered around a relationship with you. And Lord, those are our children and grandchildren in those rooms, so we pray your special blessing on them. We ask you to teach us also in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, Ryan said it. I am very excited about this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's got to be like in the top 10 of most famous Bible passages, especially the burning bush incident that Dave spoke about last week. And I love this book in the Bible before I was even a Christian, even when I was little, and I'm about to date myself, but it's so awesome, because some of you over 50 remember Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. And I remember for weeks after that, when I was a little boy, my mom would say things like, uh, clean up your dishes from the table, uh, help dry the dishes, make your bed. And I would say, so let it be written, so let it be done. <laughs> Attempting to uh, imitate Yul Brenner, who I found fascinating in that movie. <laughs> And I remember thinking the special effects were just, you know, out of this world. And now when you go back and look at it, it's so cheesy, right? <laughs> but at the time, uh, you know, that movie was um, made about three years before I was born. And it was one of the reasons that uh, the Ten Commandments and the life of Moses and the whole Exodus became so famous. And on a more serious note, when I went to seminary, I uh, had the privilege of taking a whole class on Exodus, is always studied, and it had a huge impact on my life, and I've had a love affair with this book, and this passage in particular have taught so many times out of this passage to children's workers around the world because there's so many great lessons that we can learn. So I want to follow up on Dave's message from last week. What a great message he gave, and I want to um, recall the uh, image that he uh, put before us that sort of places Moses in a, in a tension, and we all feel it. One of uh, the strings of the tension, one of the posts in the tension is that he was like nobody else. You know, the Bible says that he spoke face to face with God. And when you read this passage, it really is extraordinary, the kind of interaction that he had with God, and that continues through his life. So there's a part of the story that's like a total disconnect for me. Because I've never had that kind of intimate relationship with God, and Moses is just Moses. And then over here is our Christian life, and we try to um, serve God as best we can, and you see Moses is so far away. And what Dave tried to do in the first uh, few messages in the series, and last week in particular, was strike that balance in the middle where we recognize how amazing Moses' experience was and unique, but yet there's principles in this passage that I think are so crucial for the Christian life, and that's the way I want to approach it this morning. So let me begin by sharing with you my big presupposition, and that is while Moses is completely unique and there's really no one like him, especially in the Old Testament, the life that we live as Christians is not as 
disconnected from that as you think. Now, I know some of you are thinking, you know, it's, this is a passage and a teaching for missionaries or pastors or people who are called into full-time ministry. And I'm just a regular Christian person trying to work in my job, make enough money to support my family, raise my children, maybe save up enough money for a vacation next summer, and when I get old, have some money for retirement. And I'm not Moses. And whatever Daniel has to say this morning really is, you know, not that relevant because I'm not Moses. Well, I wanted to suggest to you that that's really not going to be allowed this morning because that's not biblical thinking. So please don't sit back and think that way. The New Testament is so clear that all Christians are a priest in God's kingdom. First Peter says it this way. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in light of the cross, Jesus is made the high priest and we are the priests working for him. It's why John Calvin calls us together the royal priesthood. And I just want to dismiss this morning the notion that I'm in full-time ministry and you are not. Because the Bible makes it clear that we're all in full-time ministry. I also want to make it clear that I'm not in vocational ministry and you're not. Because we all have a vocation to serve God in His kingdom. Vocation comes from this Latin word vocatio, and it's very close to the, word, the Latin word vox for voice. And when God calls us, He speaks through His voice into a vocation. So whatever you're doing, it is by definition for God, and your vocation, whatever you're doing, is to serve Him. Whether you're a mother, grandmother, businesswoman, by the way, my spell check told me change businesswoman to business person. <laughs> 30 years ago, I was, I was thinking about, I've got to say businesswoman because I want to be aware of women in the marketplace. And now I'm like an exclusive language person. That's amazing to me. Wow. Whether you're an attorney, whether you are a tool and die maker, a farmer, a computer programmer, a politician, a musician, a high school student, a college student, whatever you're doing, it's a vocation from God and He's chosen you for that purpose. So that's the presupposition I have so that when we look at this passage, it's all about you and the calling that God's given you. So with that in mind, I want us to look in um, Exodus 4 and a little bit in chapter 3, and I want us to look at three things that are going on in this passage. The first one is fear. Fear is like a big theme running through Exodus 3 and 4, and it's fear on the part of Moses. And 
Frankly speaking, he has very good reason for his fears. I made a list of uh, issues that would cause him to be afraid. So the first one is, he had left Egypt 40 years earlier because he had committed murder, and Pharaoh wanted him dead. So you might think that Moses, in our modern terminology, is wanted for murder in Egypt. That's not good. Egypt is one of the powerful countries of the world in that day, had an enormous military, had a huge bureaucracy, and the pharaoh had dictatorial powers in Egypt. He wasn't just going to sit back and let Moses come on down and take away the slaves. The Israelites didn't even know who Moses was, probably. He'd been gone for... 40 years, and he had been raised in Pharaoh's household, most of the Egyptians that were alive when he was there had died. So they didn't even know who he is. And God's told him to go back and get the people and bring them out of Egypt. The other problem is they already have leaders. It says that in the passage, right? Go to the elders of Israel. It wasn't like Moses was going back to a leaderless group of people. They already had their leadership, and now Moses was just going to show up and say, hey, here's what we're going to do now. Another thing to be afraid about is the entire Egyptian economy is based on <clears throat> slavery. And the Israelites were in the hundreds of thousands, and they weren't just going to take nicely to someone taking away a huge cog in their economy. Moses was obviously not a great public speaker, it says at the end of chapter 4. And then, I've not found anybody that says this, and I've got a lot of Exodus commentaries, but I'm fascinated by this. Is it possible that he didn't really speak Hebrew that well? He had been raised in Pharaoh's home. He had left and spent the last 40 years in Midian, Maybe if he <clears throat> excuse me, knew Hebrew, he didn't speak it well and spoke it poorly. And then the last fear is he just didn't want to do it, which <laughs> I understand. So let me just suggest this morning that when God calls you to serve in whatever capacity it is, I just listed a, a lot of them, fear will likely raise its head. And if you stop and think about it, you know that. How many mothers here have held a baby, knew their calling was to be a mother, and you're holding that little infant in your hand thinking, this child is totally dependent on me, and I really don't know exactly what I'm doing? How many fathers have felt the same way? How many doctors, nurses, EMTs, feel the weight of responsibility for another person's life. How many men here, don't raise hands, but good luck, give me the nod, are, were afraid when they got married that I don't really know how to be a good husband? How many of you serving in the marketplace have been afraid to act on Christian principles and be a living witness to Christ in the business world. 
How many entrepreneurs, and I know we got a lot of those here, have feared failure that would drag the name of Christ in the mud? As one of my friends tells me often, someday the workers in my company are going to grow up and realize I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> How many children's pastors feel called to start an international ministry organization? <clears throat> Thank you so much not knowing anything about organizations, fundraising, etc., all the while living in Poland. <laughs> so <clears throat> when Marla and I got married, uh, some of you knew me then, actually, I had this John the Baptist strain kind of in my life, and I uh, didn't have very many clothes, and I thought people who did were worldly, and I thought everybody should sell everything they have and everybody should, you know, move overseas. I actually told people that um, we shouldn't pay our taxes because taxes were being used to fund abortion. Marla's brother told her he's a nice guy, but don't marry him because I don't want my brother-in-law in jail. <laughs> and I had this really radical streak. Well, then Marla and I got married, and like happens, guys, we know this with our wives. They kind of calm us down and make us a little more normal. And so I was living a little more normal, but we were serving in the church, and we went on a mission trip to Haiti and came back, and I told Marla, you know what, we should just cash it all in and move to Haiti, go serve God there. And Marla would kind of roll her eyes and, you know, yeah, we'll think about that. <laughs> and then we went to, Haiti, I went to Mexico and came back, and I said, you know, we should go to Mexico and live there and sell everything we've got in the U.S. and go serve Jesus in Mexico. And Marla like, yeah, okay, well, we'll think about that too. And then in 1988, we went to Poland, and we were there for two weeks. We came back to the United States, and I said, you know, we should sell everything we've got. We should just, like, cash it all in and go move to Poland. And Marla said, you know, I was praying, and I really feel like that may be something we should think about. <laughs> and I remember thinking, whoa, ho, and it was the weirdest thing. I didn't even know what was going on. I'm like, <clears throat> uh, you know, we need to stop and think about this and pray and... <laughs> Uh, Brittany's a, two years old, you know, and taking a child overseas is a big deal. And, you know, all that time I was all radical and everything else. I knew it would never happen because Marla wasn't going to go in for living in Haiti or Mexico or Poland or something. So I could be all Joe Radical, right? When she said, hey, you know, maybe we should think about and pray about that, all of a sudden in came all the fear. Like, what the heck? I got, I'm working at this big church in Orange County and it's all sweet deal. And I got afraid because the barrier got taken away of security that allowed me to be radical without fear. And we ended up moving to Poland. And God overcame those fears, and he does it through what I call assurances. And that's the second theme that's running through Genesis 3 and 4, especially chapter 4. God offers, when we face fears in our calling into ministry and our desire to serve Him in ministry, and we have the fears come up before us, God routinely offers assurances to us, and He does it with Moses. And I wrote down seven of them. The first one is, He says, I'll be with you in chapter 3, verse 12. That's amazing. In 3, 14 and 15, he gives Moses his personal name. That's a big deal. In 4, 1 through 5, he turns a staff of wood into a snake and then back into a staff of wood. 
very impressive. In 6 and 7 of chapter 4, he has Moses stick his hand in his little uh, robe and pull it out, and it's leprous. That's incredible. Then he tells him to put it back in, and he heals it. Very impressive. Then in verses 8 and 9, he tells Moses, you know, if you pour some water on the ground in Egypt from the Nile, I'll turn it into blood there, and that'll get them. They'll know that, you know, God's in this. And then he assures Moses by telling him, I'll send Aaron to help you speak in 4, 14 through 17. And then we forget when we're reading chapter 4, hello, he's talking to him out of a bush <laughs> that's on fire and not being consumed. <laughs> that's like pretty impressive. And when we look at the assurances, there's really two kinds here. And the first kind is the relational assurance. When you go back to Egypt, I'm going to go with you. I'll be with you at all times. So when you're afraid, I'm right there with you, and you can call on my name. A name is such a big deal in the Middle Eastern cultures. It's even that way in Poland, and it used to be that way even in the English culture. In the English culture back 150 years ago, you would never walk up to me and say, Daniel, you would even, uh, Daniel, would you like to sit down? You would not even say, would you like to sit down? You wouldn't say, Daniel, what time is it? Or, uh, Daniel, or uh, can you tell me what time it is? You would say, can the gentleman please sit down? Would the gentleman tell me what time it is? Would the lady like tea? Because in formal cultures, you never refer to the person directly unless they tell you to. Please call me Daniel. This is the way it is in Poland to this day. If you walk up to a Polish person in Polish and say, do you have the time, they will immediately know you're a foreigner. Even in Polish. Because a Pole would never refer to you. Does the gentleman know what time it is, or does the lady know what time it is? So when he tells him his name, it's like, you now know, you, I'm on a first-name relationship with you, and you can call on my name. It's a relational assurance. And then the second kind of assurance he gives are these power assurances. And the gist of it is, is that when God calls us to serve him and do things like not use bad language in high school like all the other students do because I'm a Christian, this is a, this is a big challenge for young people. God's telling them, I've got the power to deal with whatever will happen when you obey me. That's what he's telling Moses. When you go down there, all those fears are legit. But I'm assuring you that I've got the power to overcome all of them, and I'm going to give you a few examples, the snake and the wood and etc. God assures us when we're afraid to pursue our calling and be an obedient servant in his kingdom. And I saw that in our calling to Poland. So once I got over all my fears with Marla and realized, you know, well, they were, you don't get over them, they're legit. But, you know, we sensed God was really calling us, and so we got a group of people together, 
there's four couples, and we thought and prayed, you know, how do we go about this? And we realized that we had two problems. One of them was we had school debt, and you can't go be a missionary and raise support from people to pay off debt that you have from your schooling. So most organizations will not allow somebody to serve with them that has debt of any kind. So we had to get rid of that, and it was, you know, a sizable amount of money for us back in those days. And then the second thing was, I was about halfway through my seminary program at Fuller, and I had no means to pay for it, and I wasn't finished. And there was no way, for, I couldn't afford the tuition, it's very expensive with the books. The church had like a scholarship program that had sort of dried up the funds, and it was a big problem. So we prayed and we said to God, you know, if you want us to go, we need some kind of assurance or something about this debt issue and the schooling problem. Well, about two weeks later, the senior pastor of the church called me into his office and said, Daniel, somebody in the church really likes you here, and they think you're doing a really good job, and they've told us that they want to open a scholarship fund in the church to pay for you to go to seminary and to pay for all your books. It's like two weeks later. It was like freaky. Marla and I are like freaked out by that. And then about two weeks after that, somebody called us. This is really weird, y'all. Somebody called us and said, hey, you know, we just bought a house in Harborview Homes, and uh, it's on a cul-de-sac, perfect lot, but it came up for sale really quick, and we bought it like immediately. But it's going to take us like six to nine months to get all the architectural plans together and approved. And would you and Marla like to come live in the house for free? It was like a really nice house. I didn't know why they tore it down. but <laughs> So I said, sure. We couldn't believe it. We moved into this huge house. And, uh, well, the first month, the utility bills came. And I called the owner, who was letting us live there for free, <laughs> and said, hey, thanks for letting us live here for this month, but we're going to be moving back to an apartment in Costa Mesa. And he said, well, why are you doing that? It's free. And I told him, well, the utility bills are actually more than the rent we were paying on our house, <laughs> on our apartment. And he said, oh, don't worry, we'll pay for the utilities too. We lived in the house for like eight months and paid all of our school debt off. I finished my degree at Fuller in about 18 months, and less than two years from the time we prayed that prayer, God made it possible for us to overcome our financial fears and move to Poland. I remember someone telling me, Daniel, just to make this clear, people don't live for free in Newport Beach, <laughs> unless the God of the universe does something miraculous like he did with us. Which leads us to the last um, feature in the passage, and the one that I'm actually the most fascinated with because of the implication it has for ministry with boys and girls, with children. The third feature that's so fascinating to me is how this all plays out in a kind of discussion format. When faced with God's call, Moses has these fears and concerns and anxiety, and he actually talks about them openly, honestly, and frankly with God. 
And he does that with five questions and concerns. And I'll give those to you. In 3.11, he says, who am I? Dave talked about this last week. Who am I? And the second question, who are you? I love Dave's work on that. Uh, 3.18, like, who are you? I mean, I got, I got to go back there and do what, if you, you want me to go back there and bring all these slaves out, who, who are you telling me this? Next, third question he asks in 4.1, we just read this morning, what if they don't believe me? Legit question. The fourth question, what about my lack of eloquence in 4.10? And then the last one, which is my favorite, can't you just find somebody else? And there's a few takeaways here that impact our relationship with God so deeply. As my pastor says, how you think about God affects every hour of every day of your life, and I believe that. So the few takeaways that we can grab here are, this is amazing to me, is that God actually listens to Moses. He does not say to him, because I said so, which I believe is a legitimate statement for parents to make under certain conditions. He doesn't say, because I'll let you live if you do what I say. How about that? He doesn't have any sense of a strong-armed approach to Moses at all. He listens to him, and he takes his concerns and his fears very seriously. That's amazing. I mean, this is the guy who's turning wood into snakes, speaking out of a bush. It's the creator of the universe is listening so carefully and seriously to Moses. Wow. And then another takeaway is, is that he addresses every one of the questions he either answers them directly or he deals with the underlying fear that's behind the question. So Dave brought this up last week. When he says to Moses, when Moses says, who am I to go back to Egypt and bring out the, the slaves? And I gave you the whole list of why that's not a good idea from Moses' perspective. You know what Moses is really afraid of? He's going to die. I mean, of course. You're not going to live through that. You're toast. He knows that. So when he does, and God therefore doesn't really even answer the question. Dave pointed that out last week. He doesn't go through the credentials that he thinks Moses has for the job. He tells Moses, here's what the deal is. You're going to come back here with the people and worship me on this very mountain, meaning you're going to be alive. I'm going to see you through and you will not die. In fact, you'll bring the people of God right here to this place. He responds to every one of Moses' questions, concerns, and fears with an answer to the question or to the deepest concern that Moses has. The last thing we can draw to this passage is that when we speak freely to God, it can include our frustrations, our fear, our anger. It can even include 
our anger with God himself. Because he's fully capable of managing all of that. Now, I know many of us communicate with God in a regular way, and this morning we praise him and we worship him. We give him thanks when we pray and communicate with him. We confess our sins to him. and We certainly pray for others. But many of us do not realize that we can speak to God directly about any fear, any challenge, and any doubt in serving Him. We can express our frustrations and even our anger with God. God's interaction with Moses shows us that He actually invites that from us. So how we openly, frankly, and honestly interact with God will vary, in my experience. Some of us are quiet and introspective in our communication. Others prefer to communicate in writing, the journaling crowd, and our prayers are written. Still others of us communicate through music. The entire blues genre of music was originally all about communicating to God regarding fears, sorrows, and challenges. Others are artistic and use art, even doodling, in their communication with God. Others are verbal and can speak freely as Moses did. But God welcomes all into open, frank, honest, and transparent communication as we see with Moses and God. Well, Marla and I moved to Poland, and we were there about 18 months, had finished language school, just getting the ministry started when the organization that sent us there imploded culminating with the president and founder of the organization writing a letter to 4,000 people on their mailing list, informing them that the board of directors were trying to steal the ministry from him. Not good. To put that in perspective, it would be like Dave writing a letter to the congregation, telling them that the board of elders were trying to steal Grace Church from Dave. Not good. The uh, ministry went into a tailspin. The founder of the organization developed this amazing paranoia, which he directed at the staff, including myself, and left Marla and I living in Poland with no financial support. They cut off the finances coming to us, and it was a catastrophe, really bad. I remember having some very serious talks with God during that time. Uh, Things like, you know, I brought my three-year-old over here, my beautiful wife, and what, you know, what the heck is this? (laughs) Lots of fear and lots of heart-wrenching times of prayer and communication with God. I was angry, frustrated, afraid. It was really just like Moses felt in this passage. And if you serve God you will likely experience some of those same things. And when we have the fears and the doubts, 
we can be confident in God's assurances and know that we can speak directly, frankly, and openly to God about them. So let's do that now together. God, we are so amazed that you would call us your priesthood and have a desire to use us for your great purposes in this world. And Lord, I pray that each person that's here would realize that they have a vocation from you, even if they're retired from the marketplace. I pray that you would um, just convince them in their heart that they have a calling from you on their life for the mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, people serving in all kinds of business activity. Lord, I pray that you would help us to face the fears that we may have. And Lord, we ask that you would give us your assurances, relational, show us your power, that you're in control and can overcome the fears and barriers we face. And Lord, help us as we are now to speak to you with confidence before the throne of grace, with each fear and every concern that we have. And we thank you that you're listening to us, you're responding to us, and moving us to respond to you in obedience. We love you, and we thank you for your word and for how it touches my life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.